Hear now uh, the words of Luke uh, from chapter 18 of Luke's gospel, uh, verses 9 through 13, found on page 877 of your pew Bible. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here ends the reading. You may be seated. Pray with me as we get started. Father God, I pray that you will quiet our hearts, that we might hear what it is the Spirit wants to say to us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Give us a deeper love for you. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If someone told you that they saw you as a very humble person, you'd probably receive that well, view that as a compliment. Um, humility is usually seen as a virtue in our culture, um, especially if uh, you know, you're an important or influential or powerful person. We especially appreciate when such people are very down-to-earth or even self-deprecating. So Pope Francis, who is the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, when he became Pope in 2013, created quite a media sensation because um, he began to kind of roll back a lot of the pomp and the grandeur and the splendor in the papacy. He did this in all kinds of various ways, and, and, and people just loved him for it. So for instance, um, you know, the Pope has a, has a throne, and when you compare the throne of Pope Francis to the, Pope, uh, the throne of the Pope Benedict, the Pope before him, it's quite a difference. So Pope Benedict's throne was a very ornate, golden throne. It looked like a throne, whereas Pope Francis's throne could just be a dining room chair. I mean, it's a very different feel. Uh, another way that Pope Francis kind of began to roll back a lot of the pomp that goes along with the papacy is in the Pope Mobile. Now, the Pope Mobile, when, when the Pope visits various countries, he's driven around in a car, and for about 70 years, the Vatican has actually had a contract with Mercedes. And the Pope is driven around in a Mercedes-Benz. So I have a picture of actually Joe, uh, John Paul II, who was two popes ago, uh, visiting the United States in a Mercedes-Benz. You know, Mercedes-Benz communicates luxury and affluence and, uh, and, and power and comfort. Well, uh, again, Pope Francis, when he made his first visit to the United States, was driven around in a Fiat, which... <laughs> You know, you just, you gotta love this. He's like thumbing his nose 
at the papacy and, and at the kind of the pomp that goes along with it. And people just ate this stuff up. I mean, it was like religious, non-religious, Catholic, non-Catholic. Everyone loved this. Because here is a man who is incredibly influential. He heads up, the, I think, the largest religious organization in the world. And he's acting in this very self-deprecating, very humble way. Now, one thing we may not fully realize, though, is how influenced that um, reaction to Pope Francis, is, Pope Francis is by our Christian heritage in the West. The fact that we value humility, regardless of if you're a Christian or not, the fact that we value it is very much a heritage of Christianity. So for instance, which, which means, by the way, in previous cultures, pre-Christian cultures, they would not have valued humility. So Aristotle well-known 3rd century B.C. Greek philosopher who founded one of the predominant schools of thought in the ancient world, he would have looked at Pope Francis and say, you're being deceitful, you're being a liar. If you were, he, he, uh, uh, Aristotle viewed humility as deception. If you're a powerful and influential man, act like it. If you don't act like it, you're just lying to everyone. Or more recently, Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher, he called Christian morality, morality that's based on humility and self-abnegation, he called it slave morality. He says it's the morality of the weak who can't have power, so they create an ethical system that makes them the ones in charge, not the powerful ones. So humility is, is a distinctly Christian virtue. And so in Jesus' day, Pope Francis would not have been popular. It would not have been valued. And the story we're going to read this morning, which shows Jesus' concern for humility as he approached God, would have been very shocking. Would have turned assumptions and expectations on their head. And here's the thing, even though we do live in a world in the West that has a Christian heritage that gives us this valuing of humility as a virtue, Jesus' story still has the ability to bring us up short. Because at the end of the day, we love humility and others, especially in powerful people. We love it when they show humility. We love when other people show humility. But we ourselves, we very much value our independence, our self-reliance. Uh, we love to feel that we deserve, that we've earned what we have. It's ours because we deserve it. And so even for us, in 21st century Western America with a Christian heritage, this still can shock us and bring us up short. Because Jesus called for Humility in those who approach God is a call for a deep sense of our complete unworthiness before God and a desperate sense of our need for God. So the outline this morning we're going to see is first point is two men, second point is two approaches, and third point is two results. Quick recap here. Again, we're in this section in Luke where Jesus has taken his disciples aside. He's, he's doing some um, intentional teaching of his disciples. What does it mean to follow Jesus before he arrives in Jerusalem for his passion for his crucifixion. Last week, we saw that Jesus teaches his disciples that they should always pray. In, in the long wait ahead of them, as they're waiting for the return of their Lord and life gets hard, pray, don't give up, don't lose heart. Well, last week it was that we should pray. This week it is how we should pray, what should be the attitude of our heart in prayer. It's one of humility. So go ahead and look at verse 9. We're given the purpose of this teaching. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Well, you read that and you think, okay, who actually does that? Like, who actually is like this Pharisee, comes into church and says, I'm better than everybody, and everybody, is, everybody else is inferior to me. 
Okay, well, there may be a couple people who think that blatantly or that arrogant. So this is for them, but the rest of us, we can kind of move on. But in fact, Jesus is giving this teaching to his disciples. He's giving it to the church, not to just the Pharisees who are, who are obviously arrogant, but to all of us. Because Jesus, who is the Lord of all, who, who knows the human heart better than any human, he knows that pride is the most common, the most insidious, and the most often missed sin in the human heart. And so this story is not just for the obvious examples of arrogance and presumption, it's for all of us, because we all tend towards pride. We all tend to limit the humility in which we approach God. But here we have, again, first point is two men. And so we, first man is a Pharisee. Look at verse 10. So two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. So right away, Jesus situates a story in the most sacred location for a Jew. It was in the temple. This is where God had promised the people of Israel that he, God, in his, in his holiness and splendor, the creator of the universe, would make himself known. They could be halfway across the world, and if they prayed toward this temple, God would hear them. It was the presence of God. This is where he situates it. And the temple would have had regular times of prayer, probably daily, where people could come together as a prayer meeting. This is likely where this is happening, in those daily times of prayer. And the first person is a Pharisee. Now, we are somewhat prejudiced against the Pharisees because of the New Testament, because it paints them very badly. And by the time of Jesus' day, it does seem like as a movement, as a religious movement, it had become fairly corrupt, fairly legalistic. But the Pharisee, I mean... It was, a good, it was a good thought, let's just put it that way. The Pharisees, were, they were like men of the people. They weren't the kind of politically affluent, like the Sadducees. They weren't getting called in by the governor for, you know, fine dining. They were living out in the country, typically working for not much money, spending their days trying to know God's word and help other people know God's word, working among the poor of the land. Like we would have liked the, and that sounds good, we would have liked the Pharisees. The problem here is not that he's a Pharisee. The problem is the attitude that he brings to God. But here's the point. Again, because the Pharisees were known as being these people who weren't in it for the money, who weren't in it for power, who simply loved God and wanted other people to love God, they were the most devout of all the Jews. You see a Pharisee going into the temple, no one's surprised. It's like, okay, this makes sense. Of course, a Pharisee is going in to pray. But then there's a second guy who walks in. This is a tax collector. And this would have been surprising to see. You see a tax collector walk into a temple. In fact, if you saw him and you were a Jew, you probably would have thought, what is that guy doing here? Because tax collectors were the most hated profession in all of Israel. They were the ones who collected taxes, but they were also working for the Roman Empire, and they were corrupt. And they would take more money, and knowingly take more money, and they would, they would enrich themselves with the, on the backs of the people of Israel. So think of how you think about the IRS come April, when you do your tax returns and you're expecting a big refund and then you realize you actually owe a lot of money and you look at all the money you've paid in taxes and you think, man, if I could just have that money, what would I do with that chunk of change? But then imagine that the IRS is also knowingly and intentionally charging you more, taking more money from you than they're allowed to and there's nothing you can do about it. And then imagine also that the IRS is run by a bunch of neo-Nazis. And you start to get a sense of how the Israelites felt about tax collectors. This is not someone you expect to walk into a temple, but something has happened to this tax collector. We don't know what. Something's happened in his life and his heart. And this man who, again, made his 
livelihood off of stealing is coming to a temple in brokenness to pray. And God is drawing him to himself. This is a reminder for us that no one is beyond the reach of God's hand. No heart has gotten so hard that God cannot begin to soften it and draw him or her to himself, even a tax collector. Well, these are the two men, two very different people, one at one end of the kind of religious spectrum, the, 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 the creme de la creme of the religious group, the Pharisee, the other at the opposite end, the worst of sinners, and they're both approaching the temple to pray to God. This brings us to our second point. These two people approach with very different approaches. I'm going to call these first the way of pride. That's the approach of the Pharisee, and then the, the uh, tax collector is the way of humility. But first, the way of pride. Look at verses 11 to 12. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, means like those who steal, robbers, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee approaches, and he basically gives a thanksgiving that he is so great, that he is not as bad as everyone else. He says, I'm not like other men. Literally, I'm not like the rest of mankind. I'm different. I'm better. And so we see the basis, that the summary of pride here is a self-confidence in approaching God. He's very confident in himself when he approaches God. I am not like other men who need grace and mercy. I'm great. And what is he based on? He bases on, well, I fast twice a week, and I give tithe everything that I have. Well, what he's saying is that not only do I follow the law, I go above and beyond what's required in the law. So a Jew had to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. He's like, I fast twice a week. And a Jew is supposed to tithe certain things, but this Pharisee tithes everything. He's probably even tithing the herbs he grows in his garden. He's like, I'm not just doing the law, I'm going above and beyond. And because of that, he's very confident in himself. Now again, Jesus is using some extreme examples. And not many of us probably walk into a church on a Sunday morning and say, God, I thank you that I'm so great and I'm not as terrible as everyone else in this room. We probably don't think that blatantly. But there are indicators of pride in this approach that manifest in far more subtle ways. And the first indicator of pride we see here is a preoccupation with himself. So this, ta- or sorry, this Pharisee, it's a very short prayer, goes two very small verses, and he manages to say, I, five times. I thank you that I am not like those others, but I tithe and I give and I do all these things. I mean, this Pharisee is preoccupied with himself. He's self-absorbed. This is one of the obvious signs of pride when our lives don't extend beyond the boundaries of our individual existence. And here's the thing. As humans, our lives are naturally going to be somewhat subjective. Like, you have to care for yourself. You have to make sure you eat and sleep. You have to work but we move into self-preoccupation when our concern with ourselves begins to prevent us from caring about anybody else. When we don't have room for compassion for someone else, we don't have capacity for empathy for someone else because all of our emotional capacity is me and my life and what's going on with me. So we see this in the Pharisee. He doesn't care about the other people around him. He's absorbed with himself. He has no room for compassion or caring for anyone else. He's preoccupied with himself. Now, by the way, this can look both like just outright arrogance, like we see in the Pharisee. This can also manifest itself as insecurity. 
Because what is insecurity but also a preoccupation with yourself and how you line up to other people? It's not always just arrogance. Sometimes insecurity can masquerade. Or sorry, pride can masquerade as insecurity as well. So the first indicator of pride is a preoccupation with himself, but the second indicator of pride here is a preoccupation with comparisons. Again, the Pharisee keeps comparing himself to other people. That's his whole point. God, I'm so great because I'm not like these other people. We see the corruption of sin because God created people to be loved and instead he treats people like objects to fuel his own sense of worth, superiority. He's preoccupied with comparisons. But the third indicator of pride here, and this is the most important one, is that there is no preoccupation with God. There is no sense of God in this Pharisee's approach to God. And it's funny, he doesn't really even pray to God, does he? he doesn't actually, I mean, he doesn't give thanks to God for his love and his mercy and his kindness. There's no sense of God's holiness or his splendor or his majesty in this Pharisee. There's no sense of God. It's Pharisee. The picture here is, a, it, it, okay, so you have the temple proper. There would have been two sections. One was just for priests. The second was where Israel would worship. And then around that, you'd have the court of the Gentiles. And the picture here is a Pharisee. He pushes into the temple proper, and he pushes right up to the limit where they're allowed to go, where, you can't, where, where only priests could go further. He pushes himself right up to God's presence. Because he's so confident in himself. And even though he pushes his way right up to the presence of God, there's no sense that the Pharisee actually senses God. That he's actually in love with God. That he's overwhelmed with God's goodness and mercy and compassion. There's just no sense that the Pharisee actually is preoccupied with God. And this brings us to a spiritual truth. Is that we are either preoccupied with ourselves or we're preoccupied with God. We are either preoccupied with ourselves, and if that's the case, then we don't have room to be preoccupied with God, or we're preoccupied with God, in which sense we don't have room to be preoccupied with self. So the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a commandment. It's also a descriptive phrase. If we have Yahweh, the Lord God, we cannot have other gods. We cannot worship other gods, but if we're worshiping other gods, well, then we can't have God. If we're preoccupied with ourselves, we're not going to have room for the God of the universe, and our world's going to be very small. It's going to be circumscribed around ourselves. But once we become preoccupied with God, then we don't have space to be preoccupied with just my little universe, because we have God. Now, what is this? Okay, so if this Pharisee doesn't show any preoccupation with God, kind of begs the question, well, then what does preoccupation with God look like? We're going to see that pretty vividly in the tax collector, but I want to make one quick side point, which is what we see here is that biblical and theological study does not necessarily mean you're preoccupied with God. This is a Pharisee. He would have, I mean, he was a professional theologian, spent all of his time studying the Bible, probably had it mostly memorized, Yet there's no genuine sense of, of wonder at God's presence, of love of God. If you have an opportunity to study the Bible in kind of a formal academic setting, do it. You'll be blessed. You'll bless the church. But never, ever, ever think that God is 
and all impressed with what you know. Said God wants our hearts. There's no preoccupation with God. This is the way of pride. This is the approach of pride. An approach that approaches the God of the universe with a self-confidence that is preoccupied with self, that is preoccupied with comparison, and that has no real sense of who God is. That's the first way to approach God. That's the way of pride. But there's a second way to approach God, and we see this in the tax collector, and this is the way of humility. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the way of humility, the approach of humility. First thing we notice is just differences in posture. Again, the the Pharisee shoves his way up to the presence of God in this cavalier way. Of course God's going to accept me. Of course I have access to God because I am so great. And the tax collector, again, he doesn't just stand on the edge of the temple. He's on the edge of the ideas. He's on the edge of the, the court of the Gentiles. So you have the temple proper where they would worship, like the sanctuary. Then you have this big court around it. He's on the edge of that court saying, I'm not even worthy to enter here. It's kind of like if someone came to our church and was like, I'm not even worthy to enter the sanctuary. I'm going to stand on the edge of our parking lot because I'm not worthy to come near this God. And again, where the Pharisee kind of pushes in and is like, of course God's going to accept me and boldly stares into the presence of God. This tax collector won't even raise his eyes to heaven. He beats his chest. God, be merciful to me. To summarize the approach of humility, it's approaching God with a deep sense of our unworthiness. Now again, there's, in the same way there's indicators of pride in the Pharisee, there's, there's indicators of humility here. And the first is that this tax collector doesn't compare himself to anybody. The Pharisee comes in, he's only concerned about who's around him, how he's better than them, and how he relates to them. And the tax collector comes in, he has, he has, he has, he has eyes for one person, that's God. He doesn't try to compare himself. Now, we think, well, yeah, when you're a tax collector, you're not going to compare yourself. Like, if you're a pimp, you're not going to try to compare yourself. But the, the deceptiveness of the human heart is that we will always find people who will make us feel better about ourselves. The tax collector could have done the same. But he's not, he's not worrying about what other people are doing or where they are. He's only concerned about himself and before the face of God. The Pharisee approaches God and says this, God, all the other people, they're the problem in this world. All these people around you see him, they're what's wrong with this world. But the tax collector comes and says, God, I am the problem here. I am what's wrong with this world. The second indicator of humility is, again, in contrast to the Pharisee, we see a, a total preoccupation with God. This, the, I, I mean, we just get this deep sense of the Pharisees approaching the temple. He knows God is in this temple. He senses the presence of God. Like, you don't go through the motions of beating your chest saying, God, be merciful to me. He has a deep sense of God's presence. And because of that, this tax collector actually prays. And the Pharisee doesn't even pray. He's just, thank you, I'm so great. And this tax collector actually prays to God, has a one-on-one encounter with the living God of the universe. And because he senses his own unworthiness in the presence of God, he has one prayer. God, have mercy on me. And the word there for mercy, it's a word that's related to atonement, the word in the Old Testament. And literally what he's saying is, God, make atonement for me. Make propitiation for my sin. Cover my sin. 
preoccupied with God. And I'll tell you one thing, is that preoccupation with God, when it's real, it looks like a desire for God no matter the cost. One thing that may not be a, stand out to us right away is how humiliating this would have been for the tax collector. He's the man of power and influence. He's, the, he's, he's one who had status, who had wealth, and these are the ones that he has been wronging. And so for him to come to those who had been weak in the society, who he's been oppressing, and come in his humiliation, in his brokenness, saying, I've wronged you all, and to stand at the very back in a posture of humility, this would have been shameful in a culture that values honor above everything. This man says, I don't, I don't care about the humiliation. I must have God. I must have him if I have nothing else. So he's willing to humiliate himself. A preoccupation with God means we desire God no matter what it's going to cost us. This is the way of humility. A way that does not come on our own confidence but comes knowing our deep unworthiness and cries out to God for mercy. And Jesus gives us these two ways of approaching him in order for us to reflect. There's an obvious invitation here. How do we, you know, which better reflects our approach to God? Individually, when we approach God throughout the week, when we come to him in prayer and scripture study, and are we more like the Pharisee? Feel good because we've obeyed God, we've avoided certain things, we're, we're better than some people we know. Are we like this? Tax collector. Maybe another question to ask is, when was the last time you really felt, felt how unworthy you are in the presence of God? There's two ways to approach God, and this is important to reflect on because what Jesus shows us is that these two approaches have two very different results. This brings us to our third point, is two results. Look at verse 14 with me. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. These two men, this Pharisee and this tax collector, they approach God very differently. And as a result, they leave God very differently. Now, when, when, when Jesus says justified here, we need to be careful about what that means. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans and elsewhere uses justified uh, for the moment when God declares a Christian righteous in God's sight based on the, the Christian's faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus as sufficient for covering their sin. It can't obviously mean that because Jesus has not died and been risen yet. But the basic idea of justification is that we are accepted by God. And that, that meaning still applies here. When it says that the tax collector went home justified, it means that he went home accepted by God, brought near to God, favored by God, whereas the Pharisee did not. This is so shocking. The Pharisee, who seemed to have it all together, is not accepted by God. But the tax collector, of all people, is accepted by God. And this brings us to such a basic question, which is, whom does God accept? What kind of people does God accept? Again, you know, we're prejudiced against the Pharisees because we have the New Testament, but you would have assumed it was the Pharisee. The Pharisee was the good church-going guy, the guy who paid his taxes, the guy who, who served in his community, was an upstanding citizen. The tax collector was scum. You would have assumed it was the Pharisee that God accepted. But it was the tax collector. It was the one who came in brokenness and humility. There's a uh, church I was a member at uh, previously here. 
uh, while I was at this church, it, one Sunday morning in the middle of the service, um, I was sitting on the right-hand side of the sanctuary in the far right, and a guy slips in late, and he sits down next to me. He's a couple seats over. And to say he looked rough is probably to put it lightly. He had bloodshot eyes, he was disheveled, and even though he was like, you know, four feet away, I could smell the alcohol on him. <clears throat> but he wept his way through the sermon, just ugly crying. And um, I want, you know, when that happens, you're, you, you want to talk to the person and find out what's going on, but he slipped out through the last song, and I don't, I don't know what his story was. But perhaps that man walked home favored and accepted by God while any number of, you know, more upstanding good church folk didn't. Because God doesn't accept us based on our external externalities, based on what we've done or haven't done. He accepts us based on our humility. Whom does God accept? The radical nature of this answer changes everything for the Christian. Whom does God accept? Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3. He says, blessed, favored by God, accepted by God, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor, the impoverished, the broken in spirit. Those who come with nothing to offer God. It does not say, blessed are the middle class in spirit. Again, very few of us are like this Pharisee. We're going to say, I'm better than everybody. But for many of us, we'll say, but you know what? I'm not that bad. There are people better than me. There's some worse than me. I'm doing okay. A middle class in spirit. It doesn't say blessed are the middle classes. Blessed are the poor, the impoverished, the broken, the destitute. Those who approach God have mercy on me because I am the problem here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is who God favors. That is who God accepts those who are so overwhelmed with their sense of God and their own unworthiness that they cannot even lift their eyes. God accepts the poor in spirit. And the question for us is, are we a church where the poor in spirit can find a home? It doesn't, doesn't matter what you look like, where you come from, but if you hunger for God and if you approach poor in spirit, can you find a home here? Now, I think the answer is yes, and I know in the past it's been true because I've heard stories that are beautiful of, of, of people finding a home here, but just two quick thoughts. One is that merely because it's true in the past does not mean that it will continue by default to be true, unless it's something we work towards as a church to be a place where whoever hungers for God, whoever is broken in spirit, you are welcome here, period, end of story. Unless we fight for that, it won't, it won't stay, and we'll, we'll resort to being a self-righteous you know, social club. But second, and every church can improve in this area. Every church can look more like the heart of Jesus Christ in the, in, in, in the prodigal son of welcoming in whoever hungers for God, whoever comes in brokenness of spirit. We can always grow, grow in that. 